Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Megan. I am delighted to have you this morning on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. This is the first. You and I have uh, exchanged messages. We now have you as the featured article in our new uh, edition of uh, Carefully and Critically, Um, and you and I have Gosh, we've exchanged so many messages, and now we're finally looking at each other here on the platform and having a meaningful conversation. So I'm very much looking forward to this this morning, Megan. Uh, but before we dive into our conversation, how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thank you, Jason. It's so nice to see your face, to hear your voice after months of working and collaborating together. Um, it's a true joy and honor for me to to share this time with you. But my name is Megan Montalivano Gorman. She, her. I was born in LA, but I currently live in Denver, Colorado. I work at the University of Denver. I'm an alumni engagement professional. Um, I'm a doctoral student in the higher education program at University of Denver as well. I own my own consulting business called Tayo Creative, and I'm just happy to be here. 
Yeah. So Megan, I've got to ask you what Tayo means. Explain that one to me. Cause I saw that in your, uh, when we, when we put that in the journal, I saw, okay, um, that'll be a good question to ask (laughs) when she introduces herself. Um, so tell me what that means. Absolutely. So I'm Filipino. My parents are immigrants. Um, being Filipino is a huge part of who I am and my identity. So Tayo is Tagalog. Uh, it means kind of together or let's go. I really liked it conceptually for my brand because it was an action, something that we're doing together, um, moving forward, kind of progress forward thinking. So it was a nod to my heritage and also uh, just kind of a fun way to quickly explain who I am and the work that I do and the values that my company supports and the type of work that we want to be doing. Yeah. So that's, um, what is that? What is that work? So I, I'm a, I'm a fundraising guy. We have trainers <laughs> around the country. We teach people how to ask for big checks, but I have to imagine there's a different dimension or maybe a dimension that you're doing that I need to add to mine or something. Tell me what that work actually looks like. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I've struggled with how to articulate this, uh, because <laughs> I do think. You know, I, I do a lot of things, master of none kind of sort of person. And I yeah. enjoy that. I think a lot of people in this field, fundraising, nonprofit in general, we're good at a lot of things. So it's hard to kind of whittle down, like, well, what is, what's my value proposition? And I really think my work centers on anti-racism and specifically anti-oppression. So really interweaving, uh, you know, values and, and concepts of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I think when we start from a framework that um, kind of centers the voices of marginalized folks, your work looks a little different. How you say things, who you say it to, who you're working with. Um, And especially when I apply that to fundraising and nonprofit work in general, it's really flipping the paradigm, right? Of, you know, we're, we're coming usually from that charity model of, coming down and helping those below us. But I think with a DEI framework, we're, we're really community oriented and community based. And I think that's a lot, you know, it has to do with my upbringing and my own experiences and just seeing things from my perspective and not seeing people who look like me or have the same thoughts or just sitting around in conversations and being like, something's missing here. And it's not that it's wrong. It's not that it's you know, incorrect by any means. It's just a different perspective and something that a lot of folks haven't thought about. So Megan, uh, knowing, knowing what I do about you, having read your stuff, put <laughs> you in our uh, new journal, I have to imagine you're a fan of Fieri. Oh, Paulo yes. Fieri. Yeah. Paulo, okay. My homeboy. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So let me tell you the backstory on that, why that matters so much, because, the, and this is why I'm so excited about having put, put you as our featured uh, a writer, because I, um, I, I have to imagine I probably knew that this would click. Um, <laughs> so I encountered Fieri's stuff, um, the pedagogy of the, of the oppressed. I, I, I encountered that while I was working in urban education about 10 years ago, I was taking some post-grad courses at Temple and, um, and I was working for an urban school that serves primarily low-income children and their families. And, um, and I really wanted to wrestle with some of these notions of how urban education is flawed and so forth and so forth. And my professor who I took several of her classes introduced me to thinking the thinking of Fieri. And so to sort of fast track and get us to where this, what my intentions are, what our intentions are with this particular journal is 
Megan, you're aware that Fieri talked about uh, narration sickness and the idea that we approach students in the classroom. He's talking about the students in Brazil, you know, as if they're these empty, empty, def, you know, lacking everything sort of containers. And the person at the front of the room only can fill them up as if they're the only ones who have assets to contribute. And what that really gets at and, and what, what we want to do with this journal Megan, is we want to tell a different story. Tell, you know, the narration sickness that you're describing in our sector is the same narration sickness that I'm trying to pick on too. I think for so long, we've been basically telling the wrong story. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. It picks up on this. Um, so I'm a fledgling critical race scholar in my doctoral program. And that's yeah. kind of the framework in which I've decided to pursue my research and my, my dissertation. But that deficit model, right, especially of minorities or or communities of color, this idea that they're lacking and we need to fill the void somehow. And there's, you know, notions of like saviorism that play into it. And if I'm thinking about CRT, critical race theory and centering race in my work, um, it's a huge issue. And it's just, again, from someone like me who belongs to those communities, who knows the depth and the just, you know, richness that is ingrained in in those identities that are just simply different than the Anglo white perception and understanding of our world, um, a colonized perception of our world, frankly. Um, I, I hope my goal and my, my mission in this space is to kind of change that narrative. And, and in CRT, that's one of the major tenets, right? The, the importance of counter narrative and and Latcrit, Latinx uh, critical race theory, that's a, a huge part of, of just finding value in storytelling. And it's yeah. different because it's not, you know, even myself as an academic citing scholarly sources and whatnot, those have value. But even just our experiences, experiential value has incredible value as well. You know, if I hinge on that word colonizing for a minute. Yeah. So I've been thinking, I have been thinking for a long, I've been, I'm working on this book project. All my listeners know that I'm working on this book project. Yes. Uh, Fieri, Fieri's in the book project. Um, has it ever occurred? So I, I, I think part of our challenge in fundraising. So I, I think, I think our, one of our biggest problems is sort of the alluring new donor, the neuter, the donor we don't have. So we mm-hmm. never begin to under, see and understand. So whoever our donor happens to be today, regardless of what definition they sort of, whatever sort of definition they sort of fit, the donor that we have today is never the donor that sort of meet, we think meets our needs, right? It's it's not, whenever sort of approaching fundraising from a fundamentally an asset-based approach, which is to say that the donors we have or the community that we have around us or the community that we can sort of build, the people that are within, within arm's reach are enough, and so I almost wonder if part of the challenge and wrestle with me here on this, if this doesn't, I'm sure it's going to click. I hope it's going to click. <laughs> are we, are we essentially guilty of sort of just constantly allowing the new donor mm-hmm. through our acquisition programs to colonize our operations to the point where they just can't thrive with the constituencies that they have? Does that mm-hmm. make sense? It like does. It's just in a, it's just in a constant colonization mode. And so right. you're always bringing in something else that's just going to sort of pull the expectations away and you can never create sort of the richness of relationships that whatever your community looks. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. So kind of like you're just focusing on the future versus enriching, stewarding those gifts that you currently have within your pipeline. 
Is that kind of what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I've read the, I've read the, uh, uh, Block is his name. I think he's one of the community, uh, community organizing authors that a lot of us in the nonprofit space read, for example. And he talks about how communities, when they want to do great, meaningful movement oriented sort of work, they have to start with an asset based approach. They have to look at the community around them. And we're so often, so I worked with the, um, so shortly after I took those classes, Megan at, at, at Temple, and I'm going to, we're going to get to your article here in a second, <laughs> yeah. but I was working with an organization that was up on the, up on North Broad Street, most, one of the most difficult parts of Philadelphia. Um, and what they didn't see, they were constantly reaching for people that were outside their community for things mm-hmm. as if they were the only ones that could save them. Right. right. It was like, it was, it was, they themselves, and these were marginalized people. These were people of color. These were all of the people that you and I would be trying to advocate for. And yet it had been ingrained in their thinking. They had been taught that there's, that we don't have assets in this community. And so there we have, we have to reach over into the, what's called the main line in Philadelphia, where all the wealthy, affluent white people live. Um, we have to reach over there to get that. Yeah. I, I think I think it can be both. So let me <laughs> clarify that. Um, I, I don't like to live in worlds of dichotomies in my work, like only being asset based, or only working with you know large white wealthy donors. Like it yeah. can be both, and it should be both. So what matters yeah. to me is the order and kind of composition of how these are created. And again, going back to mission and, and really living that out. So for me in that situation, like. Absolutely. We need to focus on an asset-based model for our communities and ask them. I feel like the more I get into this field, the more I'm like, why don't people just ask questions of like, what do you need? What do you want? Versus us as nonprofits or fundraisers coming in and being like, oh, you need this, this, and this. Like I talk with one of my good friends. We have this joke about goats. Like when we were in High school, it was like a, a thing to like fundraise and give a goat to a family, right? Like that was like yeah. almost a status symbol. It was a weird school, but like if you fundraise for a goat, like you were it, like you were the model student, the model philanthropist in your like young middle school days. And we just recently were like, what if they didn't want to go? Like what if they lived in the city and they were like, I live in a high rise and I don't have a like yard or grass. Like I don't need this goat. What am I going to do with it? So yeah. I, I think about that all the time. And like, we're taught that from a young age, right? Like this idea that we're giving something and like, there's this savior complex at play there. Of, like, Oh, we know what's better. And we're going to give these communities what they want versus like, I had wished middle school Megan would just have even connect. I didn't even know which country this goat was going to. That's the other problem. Right. Like, where is this goat going? Is it domestic? Is it international? I have no idea. But I think like when we ask questions of our community, we'll be surprised of what they need. And I'll, I'll relate this to my work working with alumni of color. All they want is spaces of community and celebration. And I think a lot of the narrative is like, oh, we need to heal these communities of color like they're not going to give to the university like we have to like explore their trauma like we don't want to talk about that as an alum of color myself i just want like regular regular services and benefits so it it has to be community-based but then using that as a base of education and community building with other folks right who 
who may not identify, who may not have those experiences. And when you come to the table with that learner mentality, with that, you know, I'm not here for myself. I'm not here to like boost my ego and buy someone a goat. Like I'm just here to to listen to my community and, and see how I can make the most impact in a way that they're defining it. That's where the magic happens, right? Like that's where those transformational gifts occur and and sustainable change can can happen. Yeah, well, you teed that up really well because you're. I'm right there with you. Asking questions, I think, is the. Um, I've, I've been studying complexity for quite some time now, and the more the more you understand complexity in our world, um, and the more you see things as living systems, the more complex. You know, the more questions you have to ask, and you just keep asking questions. And anybody who's sci- you know studying living systems, who's working in healthcare, for example, trying to you know cure our biggest cancers and those sorts of things, has to understand complexity. Um, Megan, the question we asked, and you and I wrestled on what to title this article, but the article that you wrote was uh, the, the way we titled it. You and I went back and forth on should we be so bold? And we agreed, yes, let's let's go for it, right? Um, what are we to do with all these white people? What I'm sorry, what are we what are we to do with all these white donors? That was the question you were going to ask. Did yes. you did ask in our um and for the sake of our listeners, you can download the uh the new uh edition of Carefully and Critically. Um, we'll put it in the show notes, but uh, what 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 was that question you were really trying to? It's certainly a provocative title. What are we to do with all these white people? But what's the white donor? So what what's what's the question you're really asking there? I think. Well, first, thank you for encouraging me to be brave and t- title it what I wanted to. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yes. So I, I really appreciate you empowering me there. But I think really this was a question to us as practitioners in the field, right? Like. We are, as fundraising professionals, ultimately the ones who are responsible for building these pipelines and who we're working with, who we're not working with. Um, so it really isn't like, I'm not bashing white donors by any means. Like they have made important moves and strides for, for fundraising yes. at large. And I, I always come from it. It's funny because in, in academia, there's always that like asterisk when you critique something in the field. You're like, they yeah. did great. And I was like, we did do great, but we can do better. I think is, yeah. is my, my take on it. So the question I'm really asking with is how do we make sure we're working with different people and how do we yeah. make sure we are not offending or triggering or um, making these spaces exclusive or continuing or perpetuating that narrative that this is only for one type of donor. Um, yeah. I think, you know, the future of philanthropy, the future of the world is changing. The, our, the compositional uh, construction of the United States is going to be different. And I, I will highlight that my work really focuses on the um, United States perspective. It's not an international yeah. lens because it's totally different, right? When you, when you take that into account, but, um, it's really just asking us, like, what are we doing and why, why are we still doing it this way? So the first statement you make, you say, when I started in my, when I started my career in philanthropy, specifically in higher education, I was hell bent on making every institution I worked for accessible and welcoming for marginalized constituents. When I read that, Megan, it's the first statement you make um, right out of the gate. One of the things that 
that's the statement you make right out of the gate in your article. And I think that's one of the mistakes that we may. So I teach uh, nonprofit management students over at the college and I'm constantly saying to them, um, you're going to go into the nonprofit sector with aspirations for which almost immediately the nonprofit sector is not going to deliver on. <laughs> right. Absolutely. We, 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 we come in because oftentimes, and, 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 and the interesting thing is, is that we're seeing a lot of young people like these college students, for example, and someone like yourself, we see young people entering the nonprofit sector very deliberately right out of college. Whereas a lot of my colleagues, for example, who've been 20 years in, we came in through the back door and spent some time in the private sector working for the government, for example. Um, there's a much more deliberate path now, but, but, what is it that the nonprofit sector has to do? So if we sort of take this conversation a little higher and we stop sort of picking on ourselves and fundraising, isn't there things that we need to be thinking about at sort of the more macro nonprofit level? Um, because people are entering into the sector like yourself saying, I'm hell bent on changing the world. And I, I just said this yesterday. I'm, I'm just like you are. I think we're a world changing organization, but we're, I mean, an enterprise, but we're not world changing enough yet. Mm. Um, what is it about the sector itself? What do you think? That's such a great question because I know I think about my colleagues in this space who are similar to me, different than me, but they are also passionate and so good yeah. at what they do. So I don't understand, you know, I, I think a lot in terms of like personal, interpersonal, and then institutional, right? Like the greater system. And at the personal level, what I'm seeing is amazing work. Like just look at the journal articles that this pushed out and the thought and the leadership that was demonstrated. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is awesome. And then I don't know where the disconnect happens once you get to that institutional structural level of our sector. And yeah. there's no like, <laughs> there's no like leadership body per se, or like one governing, you know, professional development association. There's several, but I, I just, I don't know who is controlling the greater narrative. Cause when you dig through, like if you read, like I, I think about my nonprofit graduate program, like none of my textbooks talked about this work, none of them. All of this yeah. research came from me talking to individuals who had these thoughts, who pointed me into the direction of these like very hidden, not very well cited, not very well visible publications and, and people yeah. who who were just at the fringes. And it, it maybe I, I think to myself, like, I, I know I live in an echo chamber. I'm highly aware of that. And I surround <laughs> myself with these people who I think are wonderful and brilliant. So in my world, in my perspective, like this work is being done. And so I, I struggle with why, why this isn't more popular or why this isn't more widespread throughout our sector. Um, and then I think about just my experience with leadership and like we still live in a very white male cis world and and oftentimes yeah. those are who the leaders are and oftentimes these ideas are seen as threatening or as a personal attack on their morality or their character um and it's not i think i and part of it is like people like me who are having these conversations like we have to navigate and move and wiggle into these spaces just enough to piss people off, but like to keep us in the room still. Um, so yeah. it's, it's hard work to, to kind of push against this, you know, 
decades old system of, of the nonprofit sector. Uh, but I, I think it's changing. And I, I see people like you who are doing this work, who are bringing these voices kind of out of the shadows. And I, I struggle with that mentality of like, slowly and surely wins the race, right? Like, I want this to happen now. Like, people need the support now. Like, people are dying, frankly. Um, yeah. Racism is a, a health issue, 100%. So I, I don't have the answer to why or what is keeping the nonprofit sector as a whole behind because it just doesn't add up. It really doesn't. When I, when I think about the individuals who comprise this, it's, I'm happy I'm in this space. I'm honored to share this space with some of these thought leaders and, and hell raisers and advocates, but I, I don't know, I guess is my answer to your question. I, I don't, I don't. Okay, so here's, I, I've I've spent my whole career. So here I am, straight white guy who has spent most of my career, if not all of my career, with very little exception, soliciting extraordinary gifts from primarily straight white other straight white men. Right. So I'm that sort of profile of a lot of what we've all got angst about. And I totally get that. But I think part of what when I look at going again, going back to this notion of narration, sickness and fear, he's thinking about who 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 gets the privilege of telling the story. I think part of, and I was talking to uh, two women uh, on the podcast some time ago um, about this notion of storytelling, and and, and use the, uh, you, you asked the question, so what, in, in, in later in your article, so what happens when all your donors are generally this homogeneous sort of population, right? That's the white donors we're talking about. Well, the thing, I, I don't know that, I think, I think what we're, one of the things that we're probably doing a little we're going overboard on is thinking that it's the donors and it's the fundraisers, those on each side of the exchange that are nearly, I don't know that the two of us, the donors and the fundraisers are nearly as problematic as the system that's sort of built on the very predictable homogeneous system. So as a white donor, for example, myself, I am a very predictable donor and there are direct response companies, for example, that sell services to a nonprofit organization like yours that knows that I behave in a very predictable way. But when you turn the population of donors into a more heterogeneous population, it becomes less predictable. And that's not an issue about who the donor is. That's an issue about the for-profit company that's tapping into our dependencies as in the nonprofit sector, you follow it. It's like the, it's like these for-profit companies are, in my opinion, really exploiting sort of some of this dysfunction that we're all wrestling with and perhaps pointing fingers at each other over when in fact, maybe we're not really all that much of the guilty party. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's definitely truth to that, but again, dichotomies, right? Like it's not an either or answer. And yeah. I think you, your um, observation of the system in which we are all kind of like stuck in this hamster wheel yes. perpetually like trying to get more secure more. I think about like our metrics, how we're so tied to, we need X amount of gifts and X amount of donors every year, or you'll get fired. Like that's absolutely part of the problem. And I think recognizing the systemic issues that are, you know, integral are the foundation, frankly, of the nonprofit sector. That's part of it. But I also think it's the onus of those individuals to kind of speak up and be like, wait a second, like, this system isn't working. So it, it'll take both that kind of personal and institutional level of change. Yeah. 
Because you're right, form follows function in this situation, yeah. right? Like we're just following the model that has been like the every model. time. Megan, every time I go into Walmart, for example, I feel, yeah. I feel as exploited as anybody else, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a system. Every time I go into Walmart, I think I, I know the products that you're going to try to sell me or that you're, you're selling me are made in third world countries and exploiting them. And then you're exploiting me and you're exploiting the employees that are selling, you know, that are ringing me out. And so it's just constant. And, and and what I am playing here, I'm just playing sort of this almost this automaton who just agrees to participate in the system. And I think there's a large number of our donors that if we could figure out a way to tell them a story that made better sense to them, um, like I'm thinking about my parents. So my parents are in their mid to late 60s right now. Um, they're the they're the white middle middle class donor who's probably in a lot of direct mail streams out there. And quite frankly, they're the most impressionable people that I think I've ever met. Um, I mean, my mother, my mother, for example, I've talked about her before. My mother grew up in the sort of the grew up in Anaheim, California, you know, right outside of Disneyland. Um, she's a consumer. And so is part of the challenge that we've got to is part of the case that we've got to make, for example, to the direct response companies that, look, you're going to have to be willing to experiment and explore new ways of telling the story because Mrs. Lewis, when she gets that direct mail appeal, she's going to respond. We pretty much can tell she's going to respond in a particular way. And that ultimately gets at some of the things you're talking about here in your article about where do we direct funds I've seen my mother responsive to all sorts of things. You just got to give her the, the story. You just got to give her a good story. <laughs> right. I mean, you she, follow me. Yeah. She sounds, she sounds lovely and, and so sweet. <laughs> she's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not picking on her. No. I'm just saying she's, she's not the, she's not a, she's one of, she's one of the white donors, but she's also one of the impressionable white donors out there. Sure. Sure. And I think like what, what really comes down to it is, is intention, right? Like yeah. why, why someone would react to a story in a certain way. And I think for yeah. me, the issue really lies with, again, that saviorism complex, and that's changing a systemic way of thinking about charity and nonprofit in general. So we, I mean, I'm not a consumer like analytics expert. I have lots of yeah. friends who work in the field and they could say like, well, you could, you know, there are ways you can analyze other communities based off of like a non-white demographic. Absolutely. And I think like there are ways in which you can do that. And I think my friends in like anti-racism circles would say like capitalism is the devil. And I was like, yo, I'm a child of immigrants. I gotta be a capitalist. Like I gotta <laughs> support myself and, you know, support yes. my parents. So I, I struggle <laughs> with that too, personally. And it's just, when I think about wanting to like manipulate stories, that's when I feel a little strange. And yeah, I, I, I pause because like, I want to give your mom a great story, but I want her to have a story that's true and told from the perspective of that person, not someone else kind of picking and choosing and manipulating again, that narrative concept. Um, yeah. And it's just, some people think that there's risk in changing who that storyteller is when in reality, a lot of people are like your lovely mom who will just love a good story and, and it'll be okay. Is okay. So let's, let's use my mom as the, the okay. stereotypical white donor. 
So my mom and dad, actually, and my dad's is my dad, my dad, I guarantee you, my dad's getting an appeal letter this week from the Billy Graham Association, a conservative white evangelical person, right? Okay. But you and I are smart enough fundraisers. I mean, some of this, that some of the critique that you've made in this article is, is that really this isn't so much about the donors, so much as the narratives that we, the fundraisers, are telling in these stories. And we're not talking about manipulative stories, but you and I together, if we were writing an appeal letter, for example, for the, for, for the university there where you work, and, and it was to benefit a, a student, a marginalized student that doesn't look like me and maybe doesn't even look like you. Um, you and I could tell a story that would, would not be manipulative and that would compel my parents to write a check. And so is part of this just simply that we as the appeal writers, the, the storytellers have got to up our game and actually prioritize and, and even in some ways see ourselves as competitive with like, in this case, the Billy Graham association, because the Billy Graham association is the one who's in my parents' inbox right now. <laughs> and, and I could get, and I guarantee you there's far more meaningful things that, you know, no shame to the Billy Graham association either, but I'm sure there's some things you and I could, could come up with between the two of us that is far more compelling, far more world changing right now and would far more align with the aspirations you wrote in this article. I, I think so. And, and like you said, it's we as professionals will have that ability. It's the same skills we use in every other capacity. But where I see the hesitation is even reaching out to those students in the first place, because people are worried that they'll, you know, somehow paint them in a, a light that may not be flattering or they're worried to even have these conversations with students of color in this example that they don't want to feel um, that they're tokenizing them. And, and that is a real concern. Absolutely. But I think we just have to do that self work first to be like, well, I know how to have a conversation with, you know, a major gift donor. I, I know how to have a conversation with students. Like it's just code switching and code meshing, which I talk about, a yeah. lot, which again, relates back to that professional, right? Like yeah. you and I, if we go in, in this interview with a student, like we're going to have different rapport with this student and like maybe you vibe with him better than I do maybe I vibe with him better than than you do um, but it's just kind of playing to your strengths as a professional and I can bring my lived experience and I can tell you Jason like there's this like calming effect <laughs> if you will yeah of just yeah. when someone who looks like you walks into the room and speaks your language and you don't have to code switch you know you can like use who you are and be authentically you are and not change who how you speak or how you present yourself or that you're always on guard like there's there's magic that happens with that too so I think it's important to like again that idea of diversifying fundraising professionals like that's that's really important for us to to build that safety and I'm not saying like only BIPOC folk can talk to BIPOC folk like that's definitely yeah. not not right. it but to kind of build that trust and save I always say like there's this racial battle fatigue when you're working with communities of color, specifically in the nonprofit world. Like they are like, oh, you're going to ask me again for like my scholarship story and like my sad story. Like, no, we should root these stories in joy and celebration, just like we do every other appeal letter that we'll, we'll write for the office. So um, there's a lot going okay. on there for sure. 
Okay, so you, you use the word homogeneous in your article. Yes. And when I see the word homogeneous, I see the word predictability and I see the word, word efficiency. And there's an efficiency that is built into that story that you're talking, that story that we, we, you know, we go down the hall, we ask the same student to tell that compelling story. And that student, therefore, oftentimes feels like they're being exploited for their sad story, right? Is some of this because we've made fundraising so damn efficient that we feel like we can only write it on paper and we can't. Because in some ways, there's probably 10 other students in that classroom that are probably nearly, if not in some cases, more deserving than that student, the student we're referring to, but would require perhaps a less efficient engagement process between that student and my mother, for example. You can't, you can't hijack the story from the one student and, and tell it to 10,000 donors. You may actually have to provide a more meaningful experience for both the student and the fundraiser in the process and for my mother in the process. I mean, isn't that some of what you're talking about too, when we talk about moving away, moving away to moving to a more diverse pool of anything is going to have to let go of some of this efficiency that is totally rooted into our entire economy since the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, that that's an interesting way to frame that, Jason. I think like when you say efficiency and you say specifically loss of efficiency, that's a yeah. bad business case for for anything. a what a bad, Say that again a bad business case right like and I'm always trying to present why it is a good strategic you know advantageous philanthropically and financially to work with communities of color so I I pause what, what, what do you mean it's a bad business case well just like loss of efficiency like you say that to your vice chancellor saying like, we're not going to be able to hit as many donors, like just because of that system that we live in. I don't get it. See, that's, a, a, see, that's interesting that you and I would, wouldn't settle on. I don't give a damn about that. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care about the efficiency that your, that your vice, vice chancellor cares about. We're, th see, I think that's part of the marketplace that we've hijacked and brought into a, as a part of the value system in the nonprofit sector. It's like what I talked about with my college professors when I was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. Efficiency is a business, is a, pr a principle of business. Efficiency doesn't work. Efficiency just let us down for the last 12 months in the midst of this pandemic. <laughs> did I, it not? It did. Absolutely. And I, you know, on a like philosophical level, I'm right there with right. you because I think, yeah. you know, efficiency really doesn't mean a whole lot tangibly, but I, I'm still a realist and I still am a young woman of color and I'm at the mercy of like making right. sure that I'm meeting these goals. So I, I have to kind of root it in that asterisk, if you will, of like, yes, efficiency is not the end all be all, but that's still the system in which we're working. And for me, what I truly believe is like, I have to work within my system to change it. Because I already am not supposed to be here, right? Like I, I may or may not be successful in this field. <laughs> Who knows? If I push too many buttons, we'll see. But I have to be careful. And I think there's risk involved with like my own identities yes. Yes. play yes. in this space. So when I say like, when we, if I, if I were to tell someone in leadership, like we're not going to be as efficient, they're going to be like, well, Megan, why are you here? Why are you working for us? What are you doing for us? So I have to figure out how to change that narrative and say, this might be different. This might not be as efficient, but we're about the long game here. We're thinking about how do we sustain 
our donor pipelines? How do we sustain this organization? And if we don't change, which is a lot of what I talk about in my article, like we're not yeah. going to have anyone to work with. So we're doing the work now and it might not have a payoff in three or five years, maybe, but it's absolutely necessary so we can be efficient in the future. So it's using efficiency both. So like. <laughs> are you, so I've been trying to figure out my own role in all this. I mean, here I'm sure. that, I'm that white guy, that white donor. So I've been reading for quite some time the uh, the writing of an author, uh, Jost is his name. He's at NYU, and he talks about this notion of what's called systems justification theory. Mm, and okay. it's the same. It, it's the it's the essence of what you and I just were talking about. That the people who are he, he basically the argument is is that the people who are most negatively affected by the systems are also the ones who will defend the systems, and the people who the system actually benefits are the ones who will actually question it. And I think efficiency is at the core of part of our problem. And I think a lot of these diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives are ultimately going to fail on efficiency because efficiency is still going to be at the core of the business case. And if we don't look for a different metric, diversity and equity inclusion is not going to happen. But I'm the white guy who will challenge that notion. And you're the person of color who won't. I think, well, first of all, white guys have a place in this, 100%. (laughs) Let's set that straight. Like, we can't do this alone. Right, right. So you're helping me me see my role. Because I'm still trying to figure out my part. And so maybe I just have to be the the major systems disruptor so that I can partner with you. You know, let people like you inform my thinking. And I can go shake up the shit, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) and and that's allyship in its most beautiful form, right? Like, there's not the same type of risk that you carry in these spaces that I do. And I think, like, there's this concept in CRT, right? Of just like, are you, do you think in like incremental change? Are you like, no, like let's CRT thinks like you can't trust the system. The system is broken. We have to change yeah. it. And like, yeah. I myself struggle with that. Cause I like, your girl needs a job. Like I still right, <laughs> right. pay my bills. Like I'm having a baby. Like there's a lot going on. <laughs> so I, I struggle with like the reality of like, like, caring for myself essentially versus like my philosophical beliefs in this industry. And you know what? Maybe it's just a matter of time. Maybe it's like, as I gain more experience and gain more security, especially in my financial life and in my my professional life, like maybe I'll be singing a different tune, but I think there's a lot of young people like me, especially young people of color who are like, like, yes, I know this work is hard. And like, we're not able to do the like crazy impact stuff we want to do because it's a, it's a self-preservation mechanism. It's a survival mechanism to be frank. So yes, I'm right there with you. And I am way (laughs) more like, I guess it's not Megan. We've got to get rid of efficiency. I'm telling (laughs) you, my friend, efficiency is going to let us down. It's letting me down as a father of four, you know, traditional family live out in the suburbs. I mean, as privileged as I might be, every time I walk into, if every time I walk into Target or Walmart, efficiency is letting me down. Cheap shit yeah. is letting me down and cheap shit is letting you down too. That's what Jost is talking about. And he's not talking about fundraisers. I think, I think some of this is. Uh, and, and I talk about this in my forthcoming book that if we can, if, if fundraisers will stop tolerating some of the shallow work that we do 
and we will raise the bar. We will get our, for example, if a fundraiser comes to me, Megan, Mm-hmm. If you come to me right now and you say, how should I define my fundraising career? The first thing I'm going to say is don't do anything but actual donor facing work. Don't do anything that doesn't basically put you in front of a donor because mm-hmm. everything else basically can be done efficiently and it can be ultimately outsourced to somebody else who can do it more efficient than you. And so I think in some ways we've got a whole cohort of fundraising professionals that have basically become master technicians at shallow work who are advocating for diversity, equity, and inclusion in our work, but the system fundamentally isn't going to get us there. Yes. Now that I'm <laughs> thinking this, it's our, it's our, Megan, unit. the best thing, I don't know how much time, <laughs> Megan, I don't know how much time you spend in front of donors, but the best thing you and I could do, and I, and I understand you work for a very reputable organization, mm-hmm. highly regarded organization, but the best thing you and I could both collaboratively do together is get you, not me, but you in front of more donors. That's what I've been asking for, Jason. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's letting you. Oh, that's another conversation. Okay. It's offline, <laughs> not recorded. Kind of. But I, I think like, I appreciate you pushing me on this. And I think like. It's what I do to all my listeners and all my, it's, it's what it. I do to all my guests. I love it. I, I haven't been pushed this hard in COVID. I feel like my brain has just been like. Right, right. Passively existing. But what when you're thinking about like, what is our unit of analysis? What is our unit of success? And when I think about efficiency, I I still am holding on to it because I still think it can be efficient. It's just a different understanding of what efficiency is, right? It's a more like, I want to say, like there's an indigenous scholar that I I read a lot of work. um, I'll cite it after (laughs) in in your notes, but it's just this concept of time and how we're spending our time is so like, go, 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 go in general, not even thinking yeah. about the fundraising world. And like, when I think about the conversations I have in my work and in my consulting work, like I spend a lot of time with these people, building trust, telling stories where like, you know, maybe a major gift conversation would be like two meetings, a lunch, and then you're done, book yes. it, sign it, it's in the system. Um, and so that is a shift in efficiency, but like the efficiency for me is like, we're building community. Like that's what we are at the end of the day, right? Like we're relationship builders. When I think about what my purpose is in this space, it's, it's building those bridges. And so, yeah, absolutely. If we're thinking of efficiency in that kind of concept and that framework, it's not going to serve DEI. And I, I see that happening already with like, some colleagues won't even have those conversations because they don't see, I talk a lot about time, talent, and treasure, right? Like yeah. they only care about the treasure and like, yeah. I care about that time and talent because that is yeah. invaluable in the spaces that yeah. I exist and the, the folks and communities I work with. Um, but that would, that would be deemed inefficient, right? So that's why I don't get to talk to a lot of donors. It is more, it is. <laughs> Yeah, there's Scott Page. Scott Page is a complexity scientist, and he has made a very strong case that you put incorporate where efficiency comes, where where efficiency is put into a complex system and creates more efficiency is when it is when it pushes you past diminishing returns. And I think part of the fundraising profession needs to get to the place where we admit that we've we've peaked, that efficiency for us has basically peaked, that 
there's a reason why GDP sits at 2%, you know, that philanthropy as a per- percentage of GDP sits at 2%. And it's because we've let the current system keep appealing to my 65-year-old mother in the same way and not allowing you. Because if I could put you, if I could, if we can get you, for example, on the phone with my mother and engage her in a more meaningful way, the outcome is not going to be as predictable but it will in the long term be more efficient because I guarantee you can get 10 times as much money out of her by talking to her on the phone as she's sending to the Billy Graham Association this week. Well, Does way, that make sense? Yeah, the way What's you just, that? The way you describe your mom, I kind of want to have a conversation. Well, of course you do, yes. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's the thing. We, it's the predictable. So the title of the new book, Fundraising in an Unpredictable World, I don't think it's about efficiency. I think some of this is the, un, is the predictableness of this. And so even if we're losing efficiency, we can't. I think that's the other thing about the, the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation. I think that's in between the lines of your article, which is what we were here to talk about. Mm-hmm. But there's a predictableness that comes with that white donor that doesn't come with it. Um, you know, the other uh, Dominique's article in the in the same issue talks about special events. The reason special events will remain in their current form isn't so much because they're white donors as much as they're predictable donors. Absolutely. Shout out to Dom, Dom Prophet. Yes. Great her. article. Yes. Um, yes. I think Yes, they are predictable, but my my kind of push for this is like, we just have to come up with a new model. We can use the same tools. They will have to be adjusted, adapted. We already segment our communications to audiences, right? Like this fundamentally working with diverse donors is, is no different when we boil it down to the basics. So there's just a little more work to do. At, at one point, we didn't have this predictability, right? With this donor group that we work with yeah. predominantly in this space. Like eventually, yeah. I mean, some people would argue, yes, it was always the system. But I'll say like from a practitioner standpoint, like this took time and it took, you know, practice to finesse and figure out like, well, this works. Like this is the model. Every nonprofit looks like this across the country. Um I do. I still believe in the system. I can't believe I'm saying <laughs> do that. You believe in the I, system more than I do. You be, see, Megan, you believe, you do. You believe in the system. I don't believe in the system anymore. And, sure. and, and I'm just a little older than you are, I guess. I don't know. Just but a see, little. The, the, th- the thing that bothers me about the system, the system that you're tolerating mm-hmm. is that the, uh, the, the woman of color, for example, the woman of color that you and I might would be trying to appeal to right now that's not currently being appealed to is essentially going to become an exploitable asset 10 years from now once we figure her out. That's what bothers me. Sure. So just like just like your article says, what are we going to do with all these white donors? In 10 years, the donor who can be exploited is going to be that that person of color who we've now figured out what they respond to, and they're going to become just as dissatisfied with the way that fundraising works for them as it's currently working for a lot of people now. And so I don't want you to be exploited 10 years from now, any differently or 20 years from now, any differently than my mother is perhaps being exploited now. She's just a consumer of a shallow process. And what, what it sounds like you're doing is, is you're saying, and I won't put words in my mouth, but you're in some ways saying if if the system can figure me out, if, if the system can figure Megan out, I'm OK with being exploited in 10 or 20 years. I'm not tolerating that, Megan. 
Sure, sure. And let me correct you. I think like the system doesn't even see me right now. So it's it's, it's different (laughs) steps, right? Like the first is you have to widen the net. You have to open the door and give those seats at the table. That's the first issue. And again, like order and composition matter to me, right? Like how these are created. So we're already pushing for changes in the nonprofit sector And I think this is an opportunity for us when we think about working with diverse donors, like we can reinvent the wheel. It's still going to be a system at the end of the day. It's still going to be, we're tied to that structure. That's just how, how things are. But I'm not saying like, I'm, I'm not accepting how things are now because they, they don't even include people who look like me or voices who sound like mine. Right. What I'm saying is we have to think about systemically that is how change occurs. So how do we make sure this is co-created with communities of color, that we are going into communities and asking them, how do we want to be included? How do you want your story to be told? So then, yeah, in 10 years, when I live in large, maybe 20 years, 30 years, live in large in Anaheim, (laughs) California, and I get a direct mail, I'm not in that situation, right? Like I'm by no means supporting this current like hell hole that we exist in of the nonprofit world, but it has to be. The way we fix the system. So I've been watching the way that women and a lot of women of color, for example, are transitioning into higher ed leadership. So where the college that I teach at, we have an African-American woman who's our college president. She's done a delightful job in a Trump voting white town. Oh, bless her. Right. Bless her heart. Right. (laughs) So um, and we don't want to lose her. And so I'm kind of wondering if if the way to get the system right in order to respond to the system justification critique that he's saying over it at NYU is to get you in the president's seat at the university and to hire me as the chief development officer. Is that basically (laughs) how this is going to work? I mean, Um, is that the essence of what is that what allyship is, is to get because because that's what I'm seeing. I'm mm -hmm. seeing. People like yourself who are being elevated and rightfully so into these leadership roles. But then do we need to very strategically take, you know, system shaker upper guys like me or gals like me and put them in the chief development roles? Uh, Yes. And more than that, I think (laughs) like (laughs) your leadership matters and having leadership who is supportive of diversity, equity, inclusion is transformational. Like I was working with a client who development office was like, this is a metric now. Yeah. Like, we have to yeah. do this. And their work, it's been phenomenal, Jason. Like I'm in awe of what they've been able to achieve because their leadership defined that. They changed that concept of efficiency for their team. So I yeah. think yes, it's having people in those positions, but also creating those environments for folks to thrive and survive. Like I do so much research about, you know, BIPOC folks who are in those positions of power and they feel so isolated and they feel so lonely and they leave. And I constantly think of like, should I stay in this field? Like, this is really hard. Like, is this worth it for me? Like mental health wise? I don't know. I, I, I'm constantly second guessing myself. So part of that is like, not just at that leadership level, but every part of your organization, making it a welcoming, thriving environment, especially for your coordinators and project managers yeah, and yeah. As assistants and whatnot. Like yeah. it's, it's important. And, and that can maybe trickle down from the top. Maybe, I don't yeah. know, 
but um, it's going to take all of us. I, I say it all yeah. the time. This is we work. This is like not me work or I work. Like we are doing this together. For my for my listeners' sake, so Megan put out a wonderful article that's in our new edition of Carefully and Critically. Um, what do we? What are we to do with these white donors? Uh, we're going to put the uh, link to download it at no cost. You can download it in the show notes. Megan, if somebody's ta- if somebody's been listening to us for the last hour, um, and they're interested in reaching out to you, they know how to find me. They're interested in reaching out to you. How would you suggest that they do that? Yeah, um, you can add me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Megan Montalibno Gorman on LinkedIn, so it's easy to find me. Um, yeah, you can also reach me through my blog. I run a blog called "How Do You See That for Women of Color in the Nonprofit Sector." Um, which is also linkable on my LinkedIn. So yeah. that's probably the easiest yeah. way to get a hold of me. And I love to chat and I love to make new friends. So please reach out. It has been a pleasure, Megan. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.